0: This call may be recorded or transcribed.
1: Hello
2: Hello, how good you g-
1: Hello hey, guys name. Hey, Nice. How are we doing? doing good uh still reflecting on our call last week. It was uh, really good um I think um. Maybe we can summarize uh, what we discussed and I think the question we left on last week, unless you have something else you wanted to go over first. All yours. So we're talking about how it's hard to get even a small group of people to come up with a shared vocabulary for something important, but it's at least a tractable problem. And then the question is, how do we scale that up to a larger community? Does that seem like a, Plausible summary of where we were at.
2: I think
0: so. and I I can't remember if semantics becoming syntax was from last week or the week before, but that's that was last week. Motif, yeah. Yeah,
1: that was yeah, that was the episode title: semantics, semantics, and the syntax. yeah. Is that it's basically you know it's semantics in the syntax, analog to digital emotions in the thoughts, feelings into language. It's a very similar. Dynamic there.
0: Oh, and, I guess uh, I'll, you know. Uh, go ahead. Pick up there. I I think one of one of Ernest's points was about how how can one have a legacy in an organization that isn't dependent on cult of personality. And I think that's that's the context in which Stallman came up. And uh, my parting thought, which I I wanted to say on the last podcast, which can be my opening thought for this one, is that legacy is a form of culturally imparting the behaviors that make you effective so that when you stop coming to work, your ethos lives on. And and that, to me, is also a semantics to syntax problem. So a great CEO should be trying to, A, work himself out of a job, and B, instill the behaviors and questions that made this them successful as a leader in the broader culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I agree with that. So this is the interesting thing, because uh, this gets to some of the, the dicey things about scale and integrity. Is that you know, ideally, what you would want is not a perfect legacy, but an adaptive legacy, right? You would want, like, cause when you know, a strong leader can leave a legacy which has both good and bad aspects, and you know, one of the Interesting things about Steve Jobs, you know, his parting words to us when he passed away delivered to us by Johnny Ive was, don't ask yourself what Steve Jobs would do, ask yourself what is the right thing to do. And so so there's this idea of having an adaptive or a transcendent legacy uh, rather than a mere copying of myself. Is that
0: a... Yeah, no, that's really powerful. And it it reminds me, I think, of another uh, powerful set of themes, which was that maybe not at the level of semantics, but certainly at the level of syntax. Satoshi's example is a very powerful one in how you codify your principles as a system that works without you. We can Mm -hmm. debate the adaptability or lack thereof of the system. I think in bitcoin it was understood that certain things about the protocol were negotiable and and minor consensus is designed this is a kind of group consensus mechanism minor consensus is designed to allow for certain changes but there are certain other things which which quote unquote require a hard fork actually and that m- reminds me of, of you talking about forking culture
1: mm-hmm. yeah forking culture is, is a great um phrase and possibly a good episode title right because the idea of how you scale up is precisely this tension between uh slavish imitation uh and adaptive imitation very similar to the idea of legacy right and so the idea of language right like one can argue that one reason english is such a dominant language in the world today is because it is so uh, uh, bastardized and adaptive in a way that French viciously tried not to be, right, in that French, like there's a right way to speak French and it's written down by the Courant Immortale who define it and a strongly curated language um, is much less adaptive and It kind of raises the question of what is your intent, and to what extent is it important to preserve intent, Uh, like with a legacy, um, and what is the allegiance to in this context? And there's a lot of nuance and tension there, but let me just say that and open it up. no one has a comment, I can give you my short answer to Anisha's question is, how do you scale up a language? And as far as that detail, how, the how do you scale up a language? Say, if you have a small group that has a shared understanding of something, how do you spread that? And uh, one thing I thought about, uh so roughly speaking, I've seen uh three, uh historical and present uh dimensions by which a language or a, a set of syntax um or a shared understanding uh, spreads um thinking specifically about human languages they spread by religion trade and conquest would be kind of the the three primary mechanisms that I've observed uh one of the most my favorite books uh from an earlier podcast I think was uh, The Wheel, the Horse, and Language. Uh, my friend David Gleason, who was here on an earlier episode, was the one who introduced me to it. And it talks about the, uh, the spread of Indo-European languages. And it marries the linguistic evidence with the archeological evidence. And he says, the reason it appears to have spread is that there was a cultural innovation, the um, pottery archeological dating was called the Yamaha um, Horizon. And it basically seemed to involve what I like to think of as a cowboy sheriff, is that they were people who rode horses and grazed cattle, and they came up with a system for how to manage conflict, which was encoded in the Proto-Indo-European religion, uh, which gave birth to a whole bunch of different language groups and civilizations. And what's interesting is that that religion would transfer with them And would get adopted into different communities, which would maintain their own language more or less. But the the ruling class, uh one clung to the religion, and two, the religion had to be this Proto-Indo-European. It's because the religion was encoded in that syntax. And therefore that syntax spread everywhere that those um uh tribes and it got assimilated and propagated um, you know, with remarkably little. Change across you know thousands of years and thousands of miles, um, and you know similar with Latin, right? In Europe, um, where it wasn't the only language, but it became the anchor language that unified people, and then you know diverged out from there. The second thing I thought about is terms language is the idea of trade, right? Arguably, the main reason English is spoken um is that you know if you're going to do business with people and you speak english uh then and if you want to do business with people who speak english speaking english is a good way to do that and you also get trade languages that emerge in a region uh pigeons and crails and so forth and i also thought about that in the context of we talked about shared semantics and shared syntax one of the fascinating things i realized about a a, a free market or an efficient market or a liquid market it requires precise definitions on both sides. And so if you're trading um, cars, you know, when we got the Kelly Blue Book, we had the idea okay, if a car has this uh, end date and current year date, and it's in one of these five categories, you know, poor to very good condition, then I know what a fair price is, and that enables a liquid market in used cars that didn't exist before then, because it was just a car, or it was basically a number of miles, which it you know, was one metric, but the idea is that if you have no metrics, it's just a used car. That's why I grew up with all these jokes about lemons and used car salesmen. It was assumed that it was going to be a uh, a risky transaction, but after the semantics were imposed on that market, it became much more efficient and liquid. And that happens. That I think of like every sophisticated market has its own peculiar vocabulary that it uses to describe precisely what is being done so that people can make fine grain distinctions in a reproducible way across a large scale. A container is a physical manifestation of that.
0: Fine grain distinctions in a reproducible way at scale is extraordinarily powerful. And I think the word, the economic term for this is fungibility, which is to say that I have the syntax that describes these units is so precise that I don't care which unit I get. And if you look at the commodities market or the stock market or the cryptocurrency markets, it doesn't matter. A stock of Apple is a stock of Apple is a stock of Apple and ditto for gold, ditto for oil, ditto for Bitcoin. And so uh, this fungibility aspect feels extraordinarily important as a way in a datocracy, if groups are going to traffic in data, then there should be some kind of semantic units that they can define and trust. Uh, you know, a way to ask this question is, what is the Docker container for data? So Docker containers made compute fungible, right? And in fact, in the limit, it should be a race to the bottom in terms of price and cost for the cloud vendors, because I can run my container or my Kubernetes cluster on Azure, I can run it on Google, I can run AWS, I shouldn't care about the implementation, so in a datocracy what are the units of data or meaning that are exchanged between groups
1: interesting the um so one i think one assumption of datocracy is that the fundamental uh unit of agreement is something like a transaction uh, a pairwise or potentially pooled transaction and that the uh assumption or the the premise of the transaction is that the two of us on either side of this transaction have a shared semantic understanding of this syntax, and therefore the terms under which we enter into the transaction and the consequences of it are sufficiently close that we uh feel like it's a fair deal as it will we're getting what we promised and What's interesting is that that, um, you know, in the naive case, it's just like the nouns describing the good. But in the sophisticated case, there's a lot of adjectives. And then in the more, even more sophisticated case, there's all these other terms and conditions which one can think about. Uh, And in some sense, those are potentially unbounded. Right. Uh, You know, think about uh, Ethereum smart contracts versus just Bitcoin, right? Is you can say, I can uh, create a transaction where I borrow $500 million, uh, do an arbitrage swap here, and it uh, pay the $500 million plus interest and take my profit. And that's a single transaction where everyone involved uh, is sort of expecting the system to guarantee that precisely those terms were honored. I don't know if that answered your question, but it took your question and made me think.
0: It, it did. You know, it helped me flesh something out. And and that's that you started getting me to think so about what these fungible units of trade in the world of data would be. And and I, I would like to propose three characteristics. I don't pretend that they're complete or even that they're correct, of, of these fungible units of data. And so, it's first, first of all, let's just motivate this as, okay, we we understand enough as humans about people data and code to get tribal level alignment and let's say that's a group of 15 to 20 people something less than dunbar's number let's say that now the next question is why should if i am
1: yeah go ahead are you still there i think that was just a glitch i think that was just a glitch Er, are you still there oh okay okay, yeah yeah. Uh we didn't say anything keep going
0: right so the three characteristics so what would cause two data tribes to want to trade with one another or what characteristics would they demand from these fungible units of data and i came up with three that i think are are important and they all back out to establishing trust so the first is lineage if you are going to hand me a fungible unit of data i would like to know where it came from and what mutations that it's been through that's one point the second is it should contain some kind of of human-friendly documentation and the third thing it should be an immutable unit of data which is to say you cannot come to me later it has this non-repudiation process property you cannot come to me later and say no 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 that's not the data i gave you change the numbers on me and say i actually gave you this other data. so so those three this lineage documentation and immutability Seem to start to get us now. We have to be very careful with this word fungibility because in the word of in the world of commodities, it means something very specific. It means that any two, like you know, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. And in the futures market, I don't care which who, whether it's a COMEX bar or you know whoever delivers the commodity, doesn't matter. Uh, I think data fungibility means something different and might need a different word. It's more about exchangeability of data. So when I leave my tribe and I become an emissary or an ambassador to communicate with another business unit or to communicate with another company, uh, I don't necessarily have data that I can trade one for one with the other tribe, but I can, I can offer certain characteristics of this data set. And, And by the way, I think that's significant. So, so in our work with clients, we see that files very quickly become meaningless. And we try and teach this concept of a data set, which is hey, it's the lineage, it's the documentation, it's immutable. So so I think we're progressing towards answering this question of how tribes align if we acknowledge that there are certain characteristics to an artifact that they would want to interchange with one another.
1: It's interesting, you
2: know.
1: Um sorry, go ahead, Ernest.
2: Uh, So each of them have a data container library that represents their knowledge right uh it has a format you know that is yeah, because they are that that that's they have this formatted information that they you know tells them uh how decisions were made in the past history yada yada so when if they and this is the example that I had in my head so this are maybe two uh sibling communities that for some reason cannot solve a problem by themselves uh you know they try you know that's what you you try to uh, you do when there's a problem you, try to, you know how can we solve this together so you can't so in that case they have to um appeal to a higher entity which could be a bigger organization um uh, I hope I'm not derailing too much this discussion together. Okay, I think it, it was just between two uh, similar communities, not a third one. So they, these two want to talk. So somehow they have merged their individual library of knowledge into a format that both, so that they both can understand each other's history. Um, sounds like a merger of knowledge, but you know, I don't know. Yes. Uh, so, so that we're I think about? you're
0: onto something. I, I think you are onto something there. And so where you almost got me to fork and pull. And let me see if I can I can put, put the so so the tribes have the what are called their idiolects or their sociolects. So they have their specialized dialogues. And now this, this goes back to memetics as well. Because remember, memes are transmitted through imitation. And so if I, I have my tribe uh has a library. Of, of our meaningful data sets or things that we believe to be true. And, and the next the question now is, how do, how do the things that we believe to be true as a tribe come to be shared truth across an organization or across a nation? And I think the answer is mimesis in the literal set of the word in, in that it's a fork and pull model. So I present a data set which has certain market characteristics. It has immutability, it has lineage, it has documentation associated and of course you know it contains the primary data and the metadata okay so these these units these containers for data and you now its success or its truth is measured by its duplication so so you now as as this neighboring i broadcast it to all the tribes and i say you you see i i have this thing that i believe to be true it has these uh, market defining quasi-fungible characteristics that we all agreed upon and now you can decide whether to propagate this or to uh or not or build upon it or fork it but but i think this is the thing fork and pull is a kind of consensus model let me explain what i mean in the linux kernel you know there's no i mean there are various master branches and there's certain people with with more commit credentials than others but the truth kind of arises yes it's curated there's a benevolent dictator well i guess we can argue whether he's benevolent or not so there's a benevolent dictator, and but I guess the point is certain branches come to predominate in that they are the most widespread copies.
1: And, and the that is were distribution, it would actually be even clearer.
0: Distribution like instead of
1: uh, branches. So like there's like the Linux kernel branches, which you know, but a Linux distribution is an aggregation of many different projects, not just the kernel, right, the whole GNU-HERD thing, uh, GNU-Linux. And what you find is that in the ecosystem, certain distributions rise and fall as the dominant one. Yeah. And certain techniques and packages and within them have their own sort of life cycles and growth and decay.
0: That's right, and and it's not – we shouldn't confuse – I guess I'm fascinated by a specific thing. It, it, quantity and authority are different, but it's also true in the genetic world. So, you know, which which mimesis or memes are based on that? You know, he or she who has the most copies wins. That, that I mean, I guess we so can the look definition at this of winning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. That is So So I guess what I'm saying is, and I, I bet you there's a very strong correlation between the number of times a reply, a, the number of copies that exist of a distribution and its actual dominance in the market. Uh, those things are very strongly correlated.
1: Yeah, but, but here's and, the interesting thing, though. Yeah. Okay, sorry. The, the, the flip side no, of No, that no, I guess. Is that there's a, um, like at the. Species level, you can say the species is dominant, but also you get the the, the, the converse thing where if you have a um, what's the word for it, where you have like only one variant of an organism, like there's only one variation of banana, if you get a virus that infects that, like you know it 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 is also it's, it's uh, less resilient. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. a yeah, so population, diversity. Or,
1: right,
0: diversity is, so the, is a is a insurance strategy
2: insurance.
1: <laughs> yeah so there's there's a, there's a there's, but anyway, the point is, is that there's different uh to me it it all feels very fractal, fractal. the community and in, in that when I have an agreement on something, like even the three of us like we're kind of working this problem out in real time like Ernest and I had a series of insights based on a long hearing of history of recorded conversations. And then this season is pretty much about you coming in and having a similar vision about a lot of things and to see if we can create this shared semantic space where we're reaching agreement. And I'm realizing that, you know, sometimes you're talking about something that's completely opposite of what I was thinking using the same words. And, you know, it doesn't actually matter because we're moving towards the same point, but sometimes it, it would matter. So everything to me is very highly context dependent of whether things are fungible mm. or not depends on the time scale and the local context and the purpose, like, okay, if we're going to build a company to propagate this, we need one set of level of – and I guess that's the thing, is that in some sense, the consumption of the information determines whether the semantic fidelity is sufficient, the use case to which it's being put, right? Like we talk about crude oil is basically fungible, but in fact, if I understand it, like the price of North crude versus South crude or, you know, North Shore crude versus Saudi Arabia crude is actually different because aficionados who have very precise needs know that sure. they can subdivide this. Oh, my favorite example is NASA in the Saturn V rocket. They would buy a bunch of screws that were all to the manufacturer specification and then go through and test them further and up the 1% that were extra hard and extra reliable right yeah. so when you have a new use case you start with somebody else's use case and you refine it for your and this is what this is what i call the um i'm calling the data craft conundrum is that what we care about from an ecosystem perspective what we care about most is the consumer's semantics but all we have to work with is the producer syntax and that's the is that like the producers have a way of talking about it that works for them and you know whatever consumers that they talk with. This is finding product market fit, right? You have to learn to figure out people's unarticulated pain and encode that in my development process so that I'm actually giving you something that will satisfy your problem. And there's a lot of elasticity there, right? Like, because I'm a friend of yours, I am biased to want to think that your problem will work for me, but I might end up lying to myself and only find out later that I was wrong. Uh, This is how most enterprise software used to get sold. And I think what you're saying is that this issue of of mimesis is actually a really powerful solution to that. It's like, okay, the way to solve this problem is that every consumer needs to turn around and become a producer, and then they find out whether it worked or not. Uh, Or at least that's a design pattern that can help mitigate that problem, is that if you go – and the more chains of that you have, where people have to actually reproduce it and see if it works and adapt it, then the more robust and if you can also close the loop and observe it all happening, then you can start getting emergent uh, deeper understandings of how things work. And I think that an efficient um, uh, open information market tends to normalize in that precise way, is that there's no greatest symmetries of power or of information, and over time it all gets normalized towards an optimal state.
0: You brought up something which, again, invoked for me the cathedral and the bazaar in a very important way. And the specific thing that you said is that the consumers have to become producers. And I wanna make that very concrete. One of the business patterns that we observe in organizations is that there is a stark divide between the the literati or the, there, there is an elite class of people who get to say what the data means. And they might be database administrators, they might be senior data scientists uh, they might be part of the leadership but there is a phenomenon where a lot of the people in the organization who birth and uh, midwife if that's the right word the data don't get to say anything and part of it is not a prejudice on the part of the organization it's that the tooling lacks an ingress point It, it, it lacks there are very rarely are there systems that work for both developers and non-developers. And what I'm trying to say is if you don't listen to what I call business users who are non-developers in the organization who may have a lot of knowledge, a lot of domain knowledge, these people could be analysts, they could be product managers, they could work in finance, they could be on a leadership team. They're people who for one reason or another aren't going to write code. A lot of what they know about the data is never captured by the system and then we there's no hope of consensus. In other words, of consensus there. There's there's no if you don't if no effort is made to turn your semantics into syntax, then we're going to be where we are today, which is, you know, the Babel problem of I don't understand your term and you don't understand mine. And so, yes, right, this, there's a, this, this idea people, of, of
1: speaking, yeah, let's call that the problem the sticky semantics, right? I understand what I mean by these words, but it has not yet been encoded in, in your syntax, which is why we have these data brawls.
0: Yes. Yes, I think that's a phenomenon and there's another there's another part to this, by the way, and that's that you think you understand your problem until you have to explain it to somebody else. So there is usually but not always some laziness on the part of the person who thinks that they know everything and they know what they mean, because they when they start to get asked questions by external groups, external tribes, who have a different perspective at least I find it's almost always a very difficult questioning problem and a lot of the assumptions that are firm to you are not actually firm in, in the lore of the organization
1: yeah we the old saying that we only can understand something that is in our past life cone of experience that we have assimilated right and once you deal with someone who has a use case that is literally unimaginable to you what, what the the the, the phrase that's used is that you can't make a system foolproof because the universe will design a better fool, right? Is, you, is that there's always uh, failure modes that you have not anticipated, or you know the equivalent no nope, nope, uh, well, they're saying you know no battle plan survives contact with the enemy, no user interface design survives contact with the user, is right. because you know we cannot uh, take a past abstraction and use it to predict. Uh, future experiences. You can guess and forecast, but I think that's the interesting thing about this view of the world. Um, uh, In fact, it's funny, you know, the the modernist viewpoint uh, is perhaps caricatured as there's one right answer, and if we just get everyone to agree on the right answer, we're good. And you know, the postmodernist is like you're smoking crack because everyone's got their own narrative and you can't help to reduce it down to something simple. Uh, the, the alternative that I have been uh, framing is what I call pre-futurism. Uh, it's the thing that comes after the postmodern. And the idea of pre-futurism is that, okay, I know a certain number of things, but tomorrow I will know more, so let me package up what I know now so that I can easily iterate it, iterate on it in the future as I gain greater understanding and knowledge. And. So it's not giving up and saying, I don't know anything. It's like, I do know something, but it's only about my past. And it's not just important to propagate it, but to package it up so that it can be improved upon. A Wikipedia page is kind of uh, the role model here, right? Is that I'm gonna encode my stuff in this document in a format that makes it incredibly easy for someone to improve upon it, rather than you know publishing something that I expect to be a book, which I wanna be the authoritative resource.
0: Yeah, this feels like a very important return to this concept of of data unit tests or data correctness tests in that you commit. So first of all, they have this quality that you just mentioned, which is they are very unit tests are like a journal. They are literally a journal of the things that exploded in your face. And when you wrote them, nobody pretends to have 100% test coverage. There's rarely ever any such thing as 100% test coverage. It's a work in progress. I have I codify the scar tissue that I have from the past, and knowing that when something blows up on me tomorrow, I'm going to add another unit test. And there's something very interesting here because it seems like a unit test is the process of taking implicit or internal knowledge. And again, people are tribes in some sense in that they are isolated pockets of meaning and language. I take something that is internal and I make it executable. and and the leaf i think that we're missing and i I would like to hear a proposal for for what this is okay so there are these tribal units that have reasonable semantic and syntactical alignment i want to propagate that alignment okay we can think of this as a fork and pull model we can think of this guys someone might need to mute i'm getting a lot of feedback we can think of this as that it's completely gone by the way Uh, we can think of this as a fork and pull model. We can think of this in terms of mimesis and replication. And it, it's interesting because it isn't just the brute force nature of genetics that the most dominant copy wins. The other tribes have a choice as to whether or not they want to emulate what you're doing and, and propagate what you're doing. So yeah, how do we, if the unit tests the process of an individual or a tribe coming to consensus around what a data set should be, what do the, what are the other acceptance criteria that the other tribes can use? Not just copying, um, what, what are the other acceptance criteria? How do these local pockets of meaning become more useful, or more global?
1: So there's a couple of interesting things there about unit tests. One was that you phrased you this taking sort of an internal sense and encoding it in the system. I always think of it as taking an external failure and making it internal to the system in that usually what happens is that when I build something somebody will say oh these numbers are wrong it's like oh I did not uh and now instead of them finding out downstream that the data is bad I want to pull that upstream into my system so I see it as a process of internalizing even uh, I see as, as as opposed to externalizing the way you framed it uh I'm not sure what that if that's significant or not but the other thing I thought to read about the wikipedia article is that there's a very uh, elegant, uh, maybe not as elegant as it could be, but much more elegant now than it was even five years ago, duality between edit mode and view mode, which to me is the consumer producer dichotomy, right? The edit-view distinction for a uh, Wikipedia page is orders of magnitude faster than for a book. And to me, the interesting thing about unit tests is, um, which you went to after I talked about Wikipedia, I think the similarity is that um the unit test shows me um or is it, supposed to reflect uh, how the data will be consumed and then I um am pulling uh, actually I'm not even sure the connection now that I'm trying to talk myself into it there's something there about the view edit dualism that uh, that I was talking about on a Wikipedia that mapped onto what you're saying about unit tests, but I cannot syntaxify it.
0: I'll speak a little bit about what I meant about the internal becoming external, uh, and I was really thinking about thinking about this process of negotiating data contracts, and maybe that's a distinction we need to define across tribes, which is to say that your tribe has agreement and everybody understands what the date column means and in other words was it when the product was produced was it when the product was released to the customer is it when we released it from the inventory i mean there's a million things that, that that particular column could mean your tribe has kind of internalized that so it is tribal knowledge in the direct sense of the word yeah, but you, we, you, you haven't use
1: the word context by the way just to keep it more scale free negotiating data contracts between a cont- between contexts
0: between contexts, Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because I, I think your point is that I was trying to go there earlier that, you know, <laughs> individuals and tribes can both be pluralities or uh, monoliths, depending on, you know, the, the state of the individual. Yes. Okay, great. So, so context. Yeah. So, so, as you scale to it, what I'm trying to say is that there are things that are obvious to you. At least this was why I went into internal versus external. There are things that are obvious within your context, granule that are not at all obvious when you break out of it and and they were obvious the reason they were obvious is because they didn't they were so obvious they didn't need to be written down and therefore they weren't and when you go across context boundaries then you have to take these things that you took for granted so much so that they might not have even been unit tests that now you have to externalize
2: them it's
1: fascinating when you mention that it makes me think about Uh, I've heard the design pattern when you're speaking to someone in a foreign language is that you should always speak, everyone should speak in their worst language. So if I'm, like, say, if you only spoke French or primarily spoke French and I primarily spoke English, I should speak in French, which is my worst language, and you should speak in English because that way misunderstanding will get caught faster. Whereas if you spoke in French and I spoke back in English, we would uh, easily misunderstand each other because we know what we're saying, uh, but we don't know what you're hearing. And it feels like that um, there's this, you know, I I think about how you have security between systems, like you encode something on one side as a nonce, you pass it around and they encode it and send it back. There is this, um, um, you know, there's I guess a different sense of the word transaction, where. If you have, and in fact that's kind of what we're doing in this conversation, it's like, okay, I meant this, let me try and put it in these words here, or let me try and express it using your metaphor, and then you see if that makes sense. And so, first of all, assuming there's a desire to attempt a transaction of some kind between these two contexts. You realize there is something of value, you you have a motivation to occur, and uh, there's an aspiration, let me call that, of a thing you're trying to achieve. And mean, you have to negotiation to say, you know, can I get what I want at an acceptable cost? And you want to, first of all, be able to have that negotiation. And secondly, you want it to succeed when it should and fail when it shouldn't. And I think that is actually an interesting part of, of the, the this is one of the conversations we have with you about your product is that actually propagating failure throughout the system in an appropriate way is critical to having any sort of meaningful success, right? Because if the, the rule is that, well, if the data fails, it just fails silently and everyone's using old data and they don't know it, then that's, you know, almost worse than uh, not having any tests at all. Uh, and so this issue of, you know, there's a meta protocol for, uh, you know, identifying agreement and communicating failure, which is almost like the baseline for building anything else on top of it in terms of negotiation. Am I making Two, sense? two
0: important points there, a, a lot, yeah. So so first, I think it's a general principle of, this can't blow up in your face, of complex, what, what we want to be self-organizing systems, that uh, failure should be allowed. And if you go back, just even 10 or 20 years in the philosophy of software engineering is, you know, one of the, one of the most pernicious things you can do is to swallow an error. Because what will actually happen is that error will compound. And, and instead of dealing with it when and where you should, you uh, end up swallowing that error and you pay a much bit, just like any technical debt, it acquires interest and you end up paying, paying much more against that interest later. So that's something interesting we talk about. It does hit the pager duty limit, which is to say there are now entire companies whose job is to multiplex whatever, Slack and PagerDuty and New Relic and all these notification systems and Datadog, my God, like now we're drowning information, so that can't happen. Um, but be, be, before we jump into that, you made an interesting point about least common denominator communication. And there was something, I, I would like for you to unpack that thought a little bit more, but the gist of it seems to be, that if we each talk in our worst languages, there's more charity in the listening towards what the person meant. And this concept of the least common denominator got me thinking about what is syntax, if not the least common denominator of the shared semantic we are trying to develop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's syntax, really good, yeah, I like thing. that. Yeah. Right. This, is, this goes back to our original conversation about readability versus understandability. Like, understandability is a you know infinitely hard problem, but readability is at least in principle uh, uh, rigorously definable. Right. I can tell if this is a well-formed <laughs> document document that I can parse. And mm-hmm. the uh, the idea is, and you know, the other thing you think about, most the, the common denominator, is like. If you have a, uh, a met language that at least gives you, yes, I understand, no, I don't understand, you know, like sign language, for example, uh, can get you that, then you can build up a more complex vocabulary on top of that, right? You, I think this is how they do this in the movies, right? They show you this rock. You, you, you make a soy and says, oh, I want a rock, and they give you a, a bread, and you go, no. And then they give you a rock, and you go, yes. And that with enough, if you have sort of this accept reject um, shared semantic, then with enough concrete examples, you can build up a vocabulary.
2: And, and people, like you have when, syntax
1: and you have some minimal, uh, I guess the minimal semantics is cannot parse syntax, can parse syntax in a sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that is, uh, there's So so in other words, all these nuanced multi multi hue concepts it, if we've all hopefully had the experience of communicating with someone that we love or care about in without a shared language and there is a yes no like you know i get it i don't that passes maybe as nonverbal communication which is exactly what you're suggesting which is you're either picking up what i'm putting down or
1: not
2: hmm
1: Yeah, literally, in the case of like a barter transaction, right? You literally, people literally put, that's how you trade between, languages. you put down your coconuts here, I put down my guava there, we look at each other and (laughs) say, yep, we're good, right? Uh, There's actually a technical term for this sort of like, there's like a Dutch auction version of this that uh, thieves use to negotiate uh, in a mutually untrusting way. and in fact, the way that that works is that this is a preliminary negotiation, and you know you do sort of a uh, a token negotiation first to establish credibility, and then uh, uh, once you've done that, then the other person sort of creates the large is the one in the next phase has to risk the more, uh, in putting down their offer first, and you know hoping that you'll provide the counterexample or the counteroffer to match it. Anyway the the interesting thing about this for me is we went from the concept of how do we scale to how do we create um trustworthy negotiations and it's interesting the uh um i had a really random thought on on that question of trust from earlier today which is a totally different direction but uh, let me just go with it. It's that uh, I often find that a lot of people have arguments that they try to solve with information when it's really a question of technique. Uh, you know, churches are notorious for doing this. They'll give you a sermon, to give you a bunch of information, but if you don't know the skill of how to communicate something, then you know, you a skill. You know, information you can just give someone and they have to receive it, but a skill they have to practice it to learn it. Right? Education is the same challenge. There's certain things. They can just tell you other things you have to practice. I think, how far does that letter go? And I think, well, okay, the top level is sort of information, which if you hear it once, you're good. The, the second level is technique, which is something you need to practice on. And I think even our idea of trying kind to of figure out the right semantics, whether this tying on clothes, right? Even if it says it's the right size, if it doesn't fit me or look good on me, then it doesn't actually work. And that's almost, a thing you have to practice, a practical problem rather than information problem. The third level down for me is that there's things which are not information or things, they're really a question of values. It doesn't really matter how skillful you are as a lawyer if you're, you know, gonna cheat your clients. Uh, and so there's a question of information technique and values. And it occurred to me that maybe at the bottom of that stack is trust. It's like even if I have the right values and the right information and the right technique, if I don't know who to trust. Or put my trust in the wrong thing. None of that matters. And you know, in a weird way, it seems like we might be building a similar hierarchy uh, about the different layers in which. Because the goal is not just to exchange data. The goal is, is to exchange value, if you will, perhaps. Right. It's the goal is to create a a harmonious ecosystem, uh, if I can use that adjective, where people are maybe a generative ecosystem where people are improving upon system and to your point about in a world of perfectly flat information full open source software in theory you would want a to flow to those who are most generative to those who create the most opportunities for others to build upon it right that's how when a like X uh, 386 dies and replaced with X windows you know uh, that's that's how uh, the baton passes between uh, dysfunctional open source projects to more functional stewards is one is frankly, more generative than the other. That's how we would move from Bitbucket to GitHub uh, was because it enabled greater generativity. And um, the um, and I think the interesting thing is that you know it does feel like that maybe what you're wanting to do is actually uh, like assuming like hypothetically the three of us like we, we build a startup that or actually I'll call this datopolis. You create a small uh, little self-contained ecosystem that embodies these principles, and you're able to run a certain set of behaviors and transactions over that. And then you say, well, how do we grow that? And I think the answer is that like, what we care most about is growing the philosophy, the values uh, of that, uh, which involves a set of skills and practices, which is embodied in a set of information and in syntax. Um, and then as soon as you can do that, then um, the thing that ends up becoming the gating factor is who do you trust? Like, uh, like do you trust me to tell you that these two ontologies are equivalent to you two can trade safely? And those problems are always good, is that the best you can do is to, uh, I think that one of my views is that every ecosystem requires at some point you have to trust a human being that it's good enough that I'm willing to risk this on that. And, you know, even if it's, you know, Ethereum, it's like I have to trust that code. I have to trust the person who audited the code. Uh, there is still a chain of trust of human beings somewhere that is essential. But if you make the other pieces more automatic, more generative, more efficient, then your trust is less often misplaced. Uh, there's more. A lineage, if you will, to look upon to determine that trust. Okay, that was a bit of a rant. You guys still with me? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Is anyone still getting, I hate to go, is anyone still getting the feedback? You guys
1: hear that? I think I think I get that when Ernest unmutes.
2: Oh, okay. Is that me? Right. Yeah, change. Uh, uh, let me fix it. I, um, sorry about that. Okay, I want to mute myself, and I'll mute when I'm ready to talk. All
1: right. Yeah, I guess there's. No, no, a, I we're,
2: we're, go ahead.
0: Are Are you there, Ernie?
1: Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm muting myself too aggressively, so I was blocking myself. I was saying, why don't you go ahead and respond to whatever thoughts you had, and then we can maybe shift into kind of closing comments and yep. thoughts for next yep. time.
0: I think the interesting thing there, all all I'll say is there is a shift in emphasis from trusting people to trusting ledgers. And I think this is, we don't, we haven't fully understand what this means culturally. And as you pointed out, even with a quote unquote decentralized system, there, it really shouldn't be that way. You you should only have to trust mathematics uh, in order to know the provenance of a data set. I think admittedly, the problem that the Bitcoin ledger solves is an order of magnitude lower. That's really at the pure, pure, pure syntax level. So certainly at the level of semantics, some personal trust is required, but I don't know. It seems to me that you get um, closer to global trust and cooperation, the less that authority comes into the picture of who you should trust. And it's simply a matter of, okay, this data container checks out. I see where the data came from. I see I can run the unit test myself. That reproducibility is critical and i don't have to take very much on faith
1: but i would phrase that as we put less trust in an authority figure and more trust in the creators of our tools who is just interested in the details of the transaction
0: is is less semantics more syntax fair because i don't have to i don't have to trust the create i mean i can you're right you're right in some sense am i going to read the linux kernel source code not frequently and do I? So I roughly have to trust those people, but I could check if I wanted to. And so I yeah, think that's so a, everything
1: is checked, yeah. right? right that, and that's a great point: is that everything is in principle checkable, right? In that you could go through, but you know, it, it's 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 um, in practice there is a. It's just like you know, in a data lake, I could go back to all the raw data, but in practice, I have to trust that the person at the previous layer built a meaningful transaction. And there should be a way to, so it, the, the ideal system is one where you can uh, do a deep dive on the, the trust as much as you need to, right? There's no hard uh, cliff. It's like, well, you just have to trust me. Well, no, I can go back and delve into that and see whether that trust was justified. I can unroll that trust, if you will, uh, to figure out where it is to the point where you could see, you know, if it's important enough, you can pay the expense of going back in there, and yeah. that like even trusting the human being, well, I can at least you know it's easier to trust someone if I can see their entire history, and I know that all their future actions will be uh, imm- you know, immutably recorded for the what 's going forward right that 's kind of the idea of public uh, representatives versus like a shadowy government is at least you have some visibility into what they have done, and the knowledge of what they do will be public record. Uh, with all these. And so, the um, I think the point though is we, we don't really trust, uh, because even trusting history, it's like, you know, um, I think the Ethereum fork is a, a cautionary tale in this, right? Where they realized, oh, there was a bug and it allowed people to just bleed Ethereum dry. So they forked it, right? And they unwrote a piece of history. And now it's like, well, okay, which fork do you trust? mathematics cannot tell you which of those two forks you should trust yeah right so ultimately well "Well, okay i trust this history you can can decide which history you're going to trust and then after that you can examine the history but at some point you have to kind of choose a history
0: well and, and maybe there's a consistency versus completeness kind of argument here in that what you come to trust and i think one of the biggest rifts between the bitcoin and the ethereum communities is, is that once your monetary policy becomes mutable, the cat is out of the bag. And so there is, uh, I, I, I have two very simple trust heuristics as a software engineer, one is simplicity. Like given the choice between two pieces of code, a simple one and a complex one, I'm gonna take the simple one every time just because in practice it blows sure. up a lot less in my face. But the second thing is, I, I'm going to trust the thing that has a history of not, of the stability. Right. And again, stability means different things at different levels. It's not just stability at the level of the code, it's you know, which allowed the rightful owners the tokens to have those tokens, etc. Um so I don't claim it's an easy answer, but I think the issue with Ethereum is that once you allow yourself to self mod the other dictum in Ethereum is code is law. Well, is code law or not? Because we seem to well, hard yeah, but, it. But,
1: you know, but you know, the you know, it's not like Bitcoin is avoided forks either. But yeah, you know, something. Like I said, the point is, is actually that this is actually precisely the the problem, is that you want the simplest system with the longest history that solves your problem, right? That addresses your problem. But this is precisely the, this is the challenge you face as a small startup, competing against large incumbents. Well, you may have a better solution than me, but you have less history. That's right. <laughs> right and like right. and so uh, but it's like well okay is this problem new enough that i should take a risk on something novel versus taking what's comfortable and, and has known failure modes right and that is i think the point is, is that depending on the context the right choice varies and the interesting uh, paradox is then is that the most reliable system may be the least useful because it was has the longest history of solving a very old version of the problem. And Mm. what we need is not to just assume that the problem will go away, is we need to develop the meta tools to be able to make rational choices in that space.
0: Last thing I'll say, and then I'd love it if if Ernest would would wrap up for us. That is why a cultural mechanism for dissent can never disappear. You, You just said it. So the longest standing practice may, in some sense, be the most maladapted because it solves an old version of the problem. And so we have to make it culturally acceptable. Let's just talk about this in the data or data set context for people to call shenanigans or call BS uh, on the data that's in front of them. And and that I think having a procedure for that, in some sense that is what fork and pull does. It is is a conflict resolution procedure. And I think the important thing there is that uh, It isn't just the the data set with the most copies or the most acceptances, you know, to be physical copies being the most authoritative. There should also be a process, and we see this in the structure of scientific revolutions, where people can be a minority and say, wait a minute, this is not correct. And um, retaining cultural tolerance for that is an extraordinarily difficult thing because you need to have a culture that allows itself to self-correct and self-defeat in some ways. And I, I don't know how you do that.
1: Well, yeah, and what happens is, in fact, culture innovates on the fringes, right? Those people who are well not well served by the dominant paradigm, right? And oh, there's a wonderful phrase for this that I wanted to bring up uh, before we turn it back to Ernest, which is duocracy. the idea that uh, you know the work should be done by those who are willing to do it, and there's a wonderful page on the C2 wiki about that, and the idea is kind of like the idea of Wikipedia or I think what I'm hoping your data tool when we get our final demo will make it possible to say, okay, this is the way the data has been sliced in the past, but it is not actually working well for solving this new problem. Let me do a remix where I refactor it, and I can start with a community of one, just myself, and say, this is the data I want for me. But can you do it in a, I guess, a platform where I'm doing it transparently and openly, so I, I, I uh, they can trust, and then people can, I can show people, okay, you know, I know this is brand new but I can show you my current lineage and give you my documentation of why. And if this appeals to you, you say, okay, I'm willing to place some amount of risk on this novel solution to this problem because I can see how and why it was forced. I can trust that you're doing it because you actually care about this problem that you're demonstrating to me, not because of some weird idiosyncratic need or some smoke and mirror shell game that you're trying to play on me, and also like we do, I can show my LinkedIn profile. So I can see I have this track record of people and this reputation that I'm staking on this very fragile untested uh, data schema. And that's why you might wanna consider it for this problem. And that is why I'm thinking like, in terms of this ecosystem, it it is ultimately about trusting a person, um, but it's trusting a person embedded within this lineage. if i rendered any speechless then we're back to ernest
0: yeah i'm I'm waiting for Ernest to jump in
2: oh i'm sorry i forgot that i was uh, muted. so we were talking about the um uh, processing these data elements uh so to have some resolution or integration then i was thinking well you know we like like ernest said we need uh, context. So, wh- one of the, I think, one of the biggest things used to reconcile uh, terms or facts uh, about contracts or whatever is to, uh, yeah, uh, have uh, context or object that is, uh, has computation in it and, and it's semi intelligent so that when you put it together with another context and you perform an operation just, such as like, merging or uh, creating a um sub you know a, a component of a contract let's say um that we can define what those operations look like and um, how they are performed you know sort of sort of like coding uh but less with less code it's like this um uh, Cardano is a uh, the ADA currency. Um, it's a crypto uh, environment built by one of the Ethereum founders. Yeah, I think we mentioned the interview to uh, you uh, Charles Huskinson. but anyway, um, where was I? Doing? Uh, yeah. So there's a smart, the, smart, the smart, 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 smart contract functionality. It's implemented in a language called. In Pluto, but then the language for financial smart contracts is called uh, Marlowe. So that is essentially um, a really weak uh, version of Pluto, because it's just uh, supposed to be very simple, not not like the way smart contracts have been, like establishing that you know you can never, you cannot run forever, those type of things. Um, so that you know, people know that at some point this contract will end. Um, so even, even though it sounds complicated, the language the language used to, to teach that or program that is supposed to be a subset of this plural language that um, helps people write uh, smart contracts for Cardano or the Cardano platform. So that's my that's what I was talking about. Like uh, we we kind of like need, uh, like you mentioned, uh, we need operations and things. Like okay, so let's dip these two knowledge libraries and and see if you know it they get diff, and then whoever is responsible, for, you know most of the uh, community uh, can go through through the results uh, and decide whether that's a good result or a bad result. So in in one case, uh, one entity might say, um, we strive to diversify and have an inclusive environment and that's one of our main tenets. The other one might say, diversification and diversity is good, but we're not going to waste our time. We're just going to concentrate on on our uh, our focus, we're not going to be active. Act, you know, actively hiring or interviewing people of different backgrounds, Let's put it that way. Um, they just say, "Yeah, we get what we get. Who we get, and you're just going to train them and move forward. We're not going to pick." So uh, that's when the uh, people that are still members of these two entities can decide: uh, Okay, is this good or bad? Is is it good? To have less uh, diverse yeah, well, less it's called it less active diversity, because the entity wants to focus on technical issues or whatever, while the other one puts that as one of its values. Yeah, we want to have diversity and we want to have inclusivity, so we have to do these sort of things to ensure that, that we are achieving that. So uh, a good way to bring that. To the pe- to the people involved, yeah, it's like having some sort of mutation, uh context and meanings, and and of course, well, we're yeah we're we're away from the syntax at this point, but you know meanings or uh, well, not that he understands, but we can but we can reflect, you know, the significance of those things in code, so that it can at least operate in in some sort of uh, uh, language that you understand and that it can explain to uh, humans that to me that's also a, a very good uh, policy because you don't want people to um, doubt the technical advancement the the technical capabilities of the of the contract, uh, you want people to trust it all the time. Like like almost implicitly. So how do you do that? They have to uh, interact with that thing, maybe even, you know, converse with it to to so that they can determine whether they can trust it or not. Yeah, that was rumbling, but yeah, we need like like the gate operations of this and and cross cross fork and maybe merge those like what uh, like you said, so that we can really have hmm, something that is beyond be something totally uh, well similar but but different. You know, contract is. you you made it so that uh, you can make money out of it or or games or whatever in this case it's for human understanding like to have a machine or set of machines or a system of machines uh, compute understandability i know it's kind of like that's impossible right because we're so complicated we can't um, be yeah, a machine could never understand what a human mind is doing. But we can uh automate the parts that we you know, that are more boring, more um uh you know, rote and not fun and then concentrate on the parts that are that are really, really difficult. Yeah, that will make us I think more intelligent or more knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah more knowledgeable and you know with uh understanding of different cultures uh so that we don't become like a monastic uh, group right we want to be united by ourselves by our own uh, uh work in what we believe in and reflecting that I read the thing that Ernest, Ernest put up on the decision making. This is, well, I listened to the podcast. So it is very interesting what, it, what they're talking about. Like, um, making a like for an entity to re, like Amazon, providing choices to people is what makes it so big and so powerful because people you, know, you want to decide to you know, they change or they give up Maybe some sort of privacy or other thing. they give up that to get uh, products more efficiently, you know, faster and less hassle. Um, so this is what, I think this is what we want to do. Uh, before getting into the AI, we have to get into the, let's imagine a a Framework where we can actually operate on context, how what what the those operations look like. And yeah, you know, building a little software, smart smart software agent that do all those things is um, is I think that's what we have to do to allow people to trust that uh, the knowledge library. And then to, for them to be able to just merge cultures, not well, you know, to merge their libraries into one and then truly just be a result of the merger. If, if uh, enough members approve that, then they, they do it and they, um, write it whatever blockchain or whatever it is so that now you have a combined library of knowledge and, and decisions. Uh, and that uh, they just, okay, we trust that, we vetted it, and now we just, let's go move, let's move forward. You know, we have a, a new mission now, as students, maybe a little modified, But um, yeah, we have this is our mission now, and these are new comrades, and, and, you know, everybody's happy. Let's just move forward instead of the, you know, politics of, uh, yeah, I, I like my position, and this is going to change my position, or things like that. that People just want to put excuses on on, like, on progress, but we can like automate part of uh, the tedious things, you know, like mergers and acquisitions. You know, they just throw it in the um, smart document or smart library. Let them figure out some things, and then we, you know, in the end, humans will go and uh, clean it up. But at least they will get a, a foundation upon which to uh, start working. That is not based on personal views and or anything. It just It's based on history and the past decisions that this entities have made. So if we can just do that, yeah, I think that that, that would be a great advance when it comes to Yeah, I'm going
1: yeah. Yeah, to call that machine-assisted context reconciliation, if that works <laughs> okay. for you. Will you guys so right, good, good at <laughs> And I think that's a great uh, question to address and uh, as a starting point for next week.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll leave uh, one one thought as well, and not not to open a new conversation. So uh, let's see, and, and it's this: I, I will propose that the Constitution is kind of the syntax of the semantics of American culture. And my question for the group is, and we can pick this up next week: is what would the Constitution of a data? We've all we all know what data governance is. What would the constitution of a datocracy look like?
2: Mm.
1: Okay, so question. Actually, uh,
2: okay, yeah, let's think about it. All yeah. Right. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank Bye. you.
2: Bye. Good weekend.